Welcome to Dealcast, the weekly M&A podcast presented to you by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. I'm Juliana Needham, a business journalist who's been covering M&A for a decade. In this episode, we're finding out about Porsche's IPO, the biggest listing in Europe for some time. I'm joined by Sam Kerr, who's the senior ECM editor in EMEA for Ion Analytics. Hi, Sam. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks for having me. So firstly, why did the Porsche IPO happen, given this really significant market volatility? Well, I think there's one answer to that is it's Porsche. You know, the, uh, it's the most high profile name in Europe's IPO market for decades, I would say. Uh, and it's an exciting luxury brand that everybody wanted a piece of, uh, whether you were a banker and seemingly if you were a, an investor as well. So I think Porsche was probably the only name that could have got done in this sort of market. And it's a testament to the company's appeal that it managed to go ahead regardless of a terrible market in the first place. Uh, it, it is a a behemoth brand, <laughs> as it were. And uh, if it weren't Porsche, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened. So what kind of work took place before the IPO? What conversations took place with investors? Because I'm guessing they did quite a lot of groundwork to test the market before they decided to press the button with it. A huge amount. Of, I mean, so we were talk, originally talking to bankers about a possibility of a Porsche IPO in February. And, and the in all credit to VW and Porsche, I mean, they started sort of appointing banks earlier in the year and managed to get the deal done within a 12-month window. So actually, that's quite quick for a European IPO. And in lots of other cases, we, we talk about multi-year processes. You know, um, Often, a bank will sort of be mandated one year and an IPO won't happen to the following one. But with Porsche, it was a quite quick process, uh, even given the fact that it was sort of you know, seven, eight, nine months. But there was a lot of work to do. And I think a lot of the work that had to be done was centered around valuation. So there was a real desire among uh, advisors on the deal, banks, uh, I'd imagine VW themselves as well, to not do an Aston Martin, uh, which was obviously the (laughs) last luxury car maker to hit up Europe's IPO market. And it was a disaster. Now, we all can say that. And uh, it's not a controversial thing to say that Aston's IPO was one of the worst in Europe in the last few years. Aston's great problem at the time was they benchmarked themselves far too closely to Ferrari. And Ferrari is the absolute, you know, gold standard brand in this market. It is a luxury car company that trades like a luxury. It trades far closer, for example, to LVMH in terms of uh, its multiples than it would ever trade to some of the other big uh, listed uh, auto brands. Porsche had to be very careful about not benchmarking too close to Ferrari. So the idea for Porsche was where do we position ourselves and where do we position this company and and for VW as well. And it was a tricky one because there was actually no other company that fulfilled the same profile as Porsche. Porsche does make a smaller number of, far smaller number of cars than say a Mercedes or a BMW. So it's far more exclusive than something like that. But it still produces numbers within the hundreds of thousands every year, 
which is less than Ferrari, which only produces sort of 11,000 cars a year, I think was the last year that, 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 it, that it did, uh, that we had the numbers for. Uh, so, so Porsche really came along and positioned itself very much as a unique asset and right in between where Ferrari and Mercedes were trading. So it looked at EV, EBITDA multiples for both those companies. And when we spoke to the guys on the deal, those were the two names that Porsche was looking to get in between, uh, Ferrari and Mercedes. And if you look at the final valuation it you know is close i mean not not quite but bang in the middle of the two so so that education process and that work to position the company and to find out exactly where investors were happy uh, i think took quite a quite a long time and what kind of investors took part in that education process so a lot of the interesting work that got done in Porsche was actually bringing in investors right at the beginning of the IPO and then also even before the book build. And what we saw was sovereign wealth funds uh, taking a real interest in, in the stock. So the Qatar Investment Authority were named on the deal as soon as uh, the, the pre-IPO or the pre-deal education, as we call it, in the IPO market launched. That was sort of about two weeks before book build started. Then they were joined later uh, by Norge, uh, by the uh, Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, and then uh, the Tiro Price in America as well, which uh, obviously acts as a very long-term investor as well of, of, of serious size. So they were very much tier one benchmark names uh, who, who wanted a, a sizable allocation in Porsche. And interestingly, with Qatar Investment Authority, uh, they, they're a very big investor as well in VW. Uh, so, so it was uh, already showing that sort of strategic harmony between the two the, the two units. And Qatar obviously wanted to, to, to have a separate investment in Porsche as well. With Norge, it was an interesting one. We were the, one of the first new services to report uh, that Norge were going to be uh, placing a big order in the IPO. And the reason for that was was it was the only way that Norge could get a, an allocation commensurate with its size. It's such a big investor. And in order for it to get the sort of share number that would actually make a difference to it, it had to sign on as a cornerstone investor uh, at the beginning of the, of the book opening process. Uh, so Porsche, I think, was very, very fortunate in that it had that sort of appeal. And there was a perception already among the market that there were going to be a bit of a scarcity of shares. And so the big investors had to come in right at the beginning and uh, put the money where their mouths were, as it were. And so they had these sovereign wealth funds, some really important cornerstone in investors, which kind of supported the stock before it went out to the wider market. But how, how did the deal go? Well, I mean, the deal went really well. Uh, you know, it obviously was huge amount of oversubscription for it. They managed to uh, zero around half the book. And, and that means that, you know, when that you put an order in, you get no shares whatsoever uh, in, in the IPO. And often banks do that to, uh, to, to, to create this sort of scarcity of demand and to promote some buying of the stock in the aftermarket, which, which often leads to sort of big jumps in stock prices once they trade. So the deal went very well uh, on the face of it. But there were, I think, some hurdles that it had to get over during the, the wider book build process, uh, which we reported on. But but no, I mean, the deal the deal went fantastically well. And it's now trading up in the market, which is the, the best thing for an IPO. So VW got the result it wanted. The Porsche family got the result it wanted. And it traded up. So <laughs> there's not much more you can ask for in this sort of market. Nice. And were there any investor concerns, such as Oliver Bloom being the CEO of of both Volkswagen and Porsche, such as the valuation, you mentioned the slight difficulty in benchmarking and comparing it, and also any concerns about Porsche's IPO going the same way as that Aston Martin's went? So there were concerns, uh, uh, quite a few actually among a lot of the institutional investors that we spoke to. Um, and the main one actually being that first point you brought up, the corporate governance, you know, Oliver Bloom being the CEO of both. 
And if you look at it, the shareholder structure itself. So Porsche only sold preferred non-voting shares as part of its IPO. So any investor that took part has no control over the direction of the company, no matter the size that you bought in at IPO. You have no say whatsoever. Uh, the uh, entire effective control of the company actually does sit with the Porsche family. Uh, so they, they uh, have a, a holding vehicle called Porsche SE, uh, which is the controlling shareholder in VW. And also now a separate shareholder in Porsche. So through the controlling shareholding in VW and the separate holding in Porsche, the Porsche family have complete control over the company itself. And that's something that I think investors had to really wrap their heads around. Now, they certainly thought that the family had the best interests of the company at the heart. You know, there is a real strategic value for the company to perform and the family do want the company to absolutely perform. However, <laughs> having sole control over over the company does mean that investors are very much passengers uh, to that process. And excuse I think the, Oliver Bloom thing excuse was, a, was the pun. A, yeah, yeah. Excuse the pun. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean they're, they're they're driving they're in the back seat uh, rather than the front seat. As it were. <laughs> but the Oliver Bloom thing definitely was also a, a big concern because they're two very big jobs. If you think about it, you know, VW in itself has had, uh, and we all know there's quite a few problems over the last few years. And to be the CEO of VW is, is, is one would think, a, a pretty much 24-hour job. If Porsche is going to be a truly independent unit and to exist separately from the parent, you would think that the CEO of Porsche would have as equally uh, demanding job. So does he have the ability to do both? I mean, that's a question, isn't it, that, that, that investors are going to want to want, want to hear the answer to because they are two now very big, separate global brands that, 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 that uh, will exist on very separate trajectories. And obviously, there's a lot of talk about Porsche possibly entering Formula One. The partnership that it was meant to strike with Red Bull did, did, did fall down, but that's something that we know Porsche has its eye on. It is a big brand in it. In, in automotive uh, motorsports uh, and, and wants to continue on that. It's, it's a very big, big name at Le Mans. And uh, it, it's pushing ahead in luxury electrification, where it's going to be competing with the likes of Tesla and, 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 and other luxury names where they are building these electric vehicles. So Porsche has a lot on the on its on its plate. And you would think whoever is CEO is going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about all those things. And, and how concerned were investors about the Aston Martin comparison? I think once they got their heads around the fact that Porsche was going at a, a far greater discount to Ferrari, they were okay about it. You know, it does take a long time to forget Aston if you were an investor in that deal. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, we almost had complete share destruction from from the point of, of IPO to, to sort of where the stock is now. And the fact that the stock's had to be reset sort of several times, it's just completed a rights issue, uh, you know, uh, and... Uh, has completely changed its shareholder structure over the last few years. It, it's almost a private company now, you know, with the with the major holdings now sitting with 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 with, uh, with Stroll, who was uh, you know the the chairman CEO Savior, who came in to, to to restructure the company. Mercedes has a very big holding now. Obviously, Saudi's sovereign wealth fund PIF has bought in in the most recent rights issue. So Aston has a had a complete transformation over the course of the past few years. And it, it, some would say to the positive, but if you were an IPO investor in Aston Martin and you're facing basically the loss of your entire investment, that's not much uh, <laughs> that's not much comfort that the company's at better track now. So yeah, I think I think if you, everyone had to get their heads around that. But I think once they saw that Porsche was being a lot more conservative than Aston was on those initial valuation thoughts, I think they were able to get their head around it quickly. But given the corporate governance, the lack of voting rights, the, the joint CEO, the, this kind of history with Aston Martin the, being the latest, the, the last car company to list, 
Why was the deal so popular? Well, I think there is some level of FOMO to, to what drives investors sometimes to these sort of transactions. If you look at the global IPO market, sorry, the global equity markets and, and, and the EMEA equity markets, the, you know, the stock 600 and, and, and everything else, you're pretty much sitting on portfolio losses across the board if you're an equity investor. Now, one of the interesting things about the IPO market this year, despite the fact we haven't had very much in Europe and, and we've had a little bit in the Middle East, which has bumped up our EMEA numbers, is the deals have pretty much performed okay. I mean, so we're looking at, a, I mean, around the time that we were writing about Porsche, we were looking at around an 11% positive performance for IPOs weighted uh, across the board. If you compare that to a sort of double digit loss in the stock 600, that's a very big benchmark advantage that you will get by investing in IPOs. And I think the idea was Porsche was going to be the largest. I mean, it is without a shadow of a doubt, the largest IPO we were going to see in EMEA this year and possibly for, for a couple of years. So it's potentially the largest single stock investment you'll make in a name, and there's a chance for performance. So if you didn't take part in the deal, you know that would be an active decision that you would have to reflect on and possibly lose out on some performance versus your peers. So if you were confident that the, the company would trade up, and I have to say, all the strategic alignment for management was for it to trade up. I mean, Porsche themselves, the Porsche family, bought into the IPO at a premium to IPO price. So they wanted it to go up in the market afterwards. You know, investors were going to, to, to get some pretty big performance from it. And I think there's a certain appeal to owning Porsche in your portfolio as well. I think so. It's still seen as a, a luxury brand that people love. And as ECM editor for EMEA, you must have a pretty good idea of, of how the IPO market is likely to perform for the rest of the year. Do you expect to see more deals following in Porsche's footsteps? I think it's hard to say there won't be any deals. You know, we, there's a few sort of mid-cap companies and a few IPOs in the sort of several hundred million euro range where I think we could possibly see success where, where, where there's transactions that can, where effectively you can build a book of, of, of fans even before you launch. But unfortunately, no, I don't think Porsche is going to herald a wave of, of new issuance and really that's due to what we said at the top of top of the podcast. It, it, it's Porsche. It's the only name that, of its kind that was in the market. There's nothing close to its appeal. And uh, I think if there were other candidates who had the same appeal as Porsche, yes, they would be able to come and, and, and be as popular and do as well. There just aren't those other candidates, though. And uh, the success of Porsche is not a, uh, I don't think, is a, is a marker of a success for the whole IPO market. It is, it is a marker that a deal can get done, but it's, it's certainly not a reopening uh, of the market, as it were. Does, however, it mean that if you were on the fence about an IPO as an issuer, you might be able to go ahead and think, well, if Porsche can do it, maybe I can, and possibly. I think it may, may sort of, there may be some conversations in boardrooms around uh, around uh, possibly doing a listing this year because Porsche has been successful. But I don't think it will herald a great wave. And the main reason for that is a lot of the problems with the IPO market this year and reason deals haven't come is nothing to do with investors. It's been sellers who don't want to accept the valuations that investors are willing to pay at the moment. And Porsche did take a big valuation cut to, to, to Ferrari, which if it, if it were an aggressive seller, perhaps it wouldn't have done. Uh, so I think... If a seller is willing to take a big discount on what the initial expectations were for their IPO at the beginning of the year, then I think they have every chance possibly of listing and being successful. But unfortunately, they are going to have to take a big discount to do a deal. Great. Sam, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thanks, Julia. Thanks very much for having me. 
that was Sam Kerr, Senior ECM Editor in EMEA for Ion Analytics. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of DealCast presented by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. Please rate, review and follow the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or look out for your Merger Market news alert. For more information, have a look at our show notes. Join us next week for another episode. 